The Grim Drive podcast explores mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. Pro athletes come forward more and more with stories about their mental health journey, what they have endured, and how they manage to push through, reflecting a mental health stigma that continues to be reduced. Pro athletes also leverage mindset to achieve peak performance, as well as representing and often driving elements of popular culture through the use of social media, technology, and personal branding. This places athletes front and center as role models for people of all ages, giving them a platform to reach many and deliver important information, including information about mental health. to the Grim Drive podcast, where we explore mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. My name is Jonathan Busfield. I'm here with my co-host, John Cuna. Today, we'll be discussing Hayden Hurst and suicide prevention. You know, this episode kind of ties into our last one a little bit, where we did Dak Prescott in recovery for a couple of reasons. I mean, I think there was a key moment. And we've talked about how some of these key moments with athletes and speaking up about mental health and the importance of opening up about mental health are more in depth and some of the moments are just short little you know a tweet by DeMar DeRozan or you know a a brief conversation at the end of the game like what happened with Dak Prescott and Hayden Hurst where they played each other at the end of the game Hayden Hurst went up to Dak Prescott and really gave him credit cameras caught it I think it was really important because it showed two guys on the opposing teams really joining you know agreeing in in the benefit of talking uh, speaking up about these kinds of things and also, you know, Dak Prescott was obviously struggling uh, during the during the pandemic, struggling with his own mental health issues. His brother had committed suicide. So there's come some kind of ties there. And we thought, you know, Hayden Hurst is someone who's been very vocal about his mental health struggles um, in a great way. You know, he, he has spoken up um, in, a, you know, he's on the E60 episode, I think. Um, he's also been interviewed on podcasts and things like that. So he's very vocal about it. We thought it'd be good to do this, this episode uh, it's a difficult topic, so we're going to kind of just give everyone a quick heads up that this episode is difficult. It gets into the topic of suicide, uh, which is never easy to talk about, but it is necessary for us to talk about it. Uh, so please use caution when listening, just because it is, it's is—it's a little more heavy than some of the past episodes we've done. So we want to give people uh, some caution with that. And we just urge anyone anyone struggling um, you know, to call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline to get help. It's one 800 273 Eight two five five again. The National Suicide Prevention Hotline one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. So a quick bio on on Hayden Hurst. You know he's a uh, he plays in the NFL. He's a tight end. He's on the Falcons currently. I think he was on drafted by the Ravens pre, uh, originally. Also a former minor league pitcher for the Pittsburgh, uh, Pittsburgh Pirates, which we'll get into. He started the Hayden Hurst Foundation. You can go there at uh, HaydenHurstFoundation.com. And that the foundation's mission is to raise awareness of men, about mental health issues in children and adolescents by funding mental health services and programs through donations and fundraising events, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, they do um, a ton of work. Yes, they yeah. do, and they haven't yeah. been around that long, so mm-hmm. it's really it's even more impressive when you consider that yep. it's not easy to get something like that off the ground, let no. alone be very helpful very fast. Yeah, uh, especially so, on a topic like suicide, absolutely, and prevention and stuff like Absol- that. Really absolutely, difficult. and there, you know, I, I feel like that was an area that was missing something mm-hmm. like that. So. Um, it's great that, you know, that he started that or they started that foundation. Um, you know, we donated. We encourage listeners to do the same. So in terms of, you know, we'll get into the player spotlight. You know, as as usual, we focus on one player and one mental health topic or one mental health issue. Uh, and we try to give our takeaways from what they've said about mental health and their experience. And then we kind of get into, all right, this is the issue we're focusing on. What can people do when they're when they're struggling with that issue? So we'll start with Hayden Hurst. Um you know, and usually I kick it to you, John. I'm going to start a little bit differently because I want to give a timeline. So I want to start with like kind of like a mini takeaway that I had, which leads into the timeline of events for him, um, and then you know maybe finish up with a with a, a related takeaway and then kick it to you for some of your takeaways about uh, you know Hayden Hurst and his story. Um, the first mini takeaway I have was that the the loss of purpose. You know, he had clearly a loss of purpose and the and was overlapping the act with self-worth. We've talked a lot about that, right? When athletes think it came up in the Kevin Love episode, I think it came up up with Michael Phelps where after he got away from swimming, it was kind of like, what do I do now? Mm -hmm. Um, Where when they're overlapping the sport, overlapping the act with their self-worth and their identity, then if anything happens to that, if it doesn't go well, if they have to retire, it really leaves them in a huge hole and not knowing how to climb out. We see that coming up again and again. I think this is kind of uh, integral to his Hayden Hurst's experience. And so that kind of leads into the timeline because I think 
he shared how he he started you know he dealt with depression and anxiety which began during an un- unsuccessful stint as a pitcher uh, in the Pittsburgh Pirates organization you know, he was in the minor leagues he had been you know touted as a pitcher from a very young age i think he started throwing 90 uh, 94 when he was like in 8th grade yeah. which is you know really uh, <laughs> unbelievable um, had Tommy John surgery, I think in ninth grade, then came back, but was, you know, obviously thrown 94, 95 when you're a freshman in high school is like, you're going to get um, looked at, you're going to get looked at. I mean, <laughs> so I think he was being, you know, told from an early age, you're going to be a pro pitcher and you're going to be amazing at it. And, uh, I wouldn't blame him for believing that. But I think when you, when you're, when you hear that a lot, it, there's a lot of pressure that builds and the expectation is that or bust, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You're either going to you know, become that or you're, you're a failure basically. And it sounds like that is something that definitely happened to him. But so he's in the Pittsburgh Pirates organization, and he kind of developed the yips. So before I get I get through the whole timeline, I want to kick it to you, John, a little bit on this. Like, what? How would you describe the yips for people listening? So the yips is like a it's a not not necessarily a new term. It's been something that's been around for a lot of time, and you'll you've you know, there are certain athletes who have been more outspoken about it, or like careers have been sort of like damned by the yips, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and basically, what it is is just sort of like the the point in which the mental capacity or the mental wherewithal is gets in the way of their being able to perform. So there are a lot of times when I'm working with athletes who are dealing with like the yips, it's a lot of doubt. It's a lot yeah. of second guessing. Honestly, it's, it's most part, it's too much thinking too much going thinking. on yeah. on the field um, or the, the ice or the wherever they are. Um, and you see that all the time. They get in their head. They, because we're more prone to think negatively, they're thinking all the terrible things that might happen to them, even if it's just a routine, let's say ground ball mm-hmm. or a, you know, routine pitch or whatever it happens to be They're Now they're thinking, well, what if I miss this? What if this happens? What if, what if I can't do this? And then while they're caught in their head thinking about that, the game doesn't stop. Right. And it keeps going. And then mm-hmm. that's when they're more prone to be making those mistakes. And, you know, as the viewer, you just see them make a mistake. You can't see the turmoil that's going on inside of their head. Um, and I think that that happens for a lot of players. I think that happens. You see it all over the place. You know, when you see an error as a viewer, you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that player made that error. That's such an easy thing. But you have no idea what's going on in, inside of their mm-hmm. head. And when you have players who align their entire identity with their performance that's an enormous amount of pressure like you mentioned it's it's and it's a good point i think i and i i see that a lot and with athletes a lot of pro athletes show propensities from a really young age a lot of times um and you get sort of put on this track and like to your point you it's it's that or bust and then when you finally get there, it's still stay here or bust. And the yips really come into play a lot for a lot for, I would say, I would be surprised if any professional athlete would say that they've never experienced the yips. I think every single, not just pro athlete, any athlete in general Mm -hmm. always has experienced some sort of the yips. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's something that can be, I guess the word, hard word to say treated, but it's definitely something that can be addressed and talked about um, and worked on. Um, but again, and, um, you know, us as a lot of like people aren't really given the opportunity or platform to talk about what's going on. Yeah. They're just seen as like, oh, you made a bunch of errors. That's going to affect your play or maybe you get benched or whatever. And then they don't talk about it at all. And it's it's unfortunate. Yeah, absolutely. I think you make some great points because I think the yips... I. I would say golfers are probably the thing, yeah. the type of athlete that's most commonly associated with. But you definitely have seen it in, uh, in major situations across sports. Um, Chuck Knobloch, he was a second baseman for the, the Yankees, I think is one that people um, mostly identify with, although that was like 20 years ago. But mm-hmm. it was a, a notable thing. He just couldn't – He all of a sudden out of the blue, he could not make a throw to second to from his position at second base to first base, which is one of the easiest throws to make on the on the baseball diamond. And it just for what for whatever reason all of a sudden couldn't do it was too much in in his own head, and I think you know maybe we might, we might do an episode on the yips at some point. Yeah, whether it's about Chuck Knobloch or maybe somebody an athlete more recently because I think it's a great opportunity for, for especially for you, John, to discuss you know how athletes deal with this, what are their options for how to overcome it because it is a a huge psychological piece. I think I when I think when I see yips, I think sort of a a a continuum or like a scale. From one side you have like flow. Mm-hmm. intense flow state on the other side you have yips mm-hmm. right and as an athlete i think when a person when athletes at their best it's usually when they're in an intense flow state right they are not thinking at all they, they're just like they've honed the craft they've honed the physical movements and the whole the, the mental physical integration of the sport and they are just in the zone relying on instinct yeah. because they've practiced it so much and and the practice 
and mastery combines with talent to just have them be able to achieve at a very high level. Mm-hmm. But they're not thinking about what they're doing as they're doing it. It's 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 happening just naturally. Happening. Yep. That's a flow state. And I think you know if you if you think of like basketball players who have said you know the rim the the rim looked like it was the size of, of a you know three beach balls or that kind of, that's what it feels like to be in a flow state where mm-hmm. every you are just locked into the act and it seems effortless mm-hmm. the yips are the exact opposite end of the spectrum where everything feels like a chore and you're overthinking every little thing and you're not relying on your instincts at all you're trying to overthink every little aspect uh, and i think that's why golf happens so much in golf i mean you you play golf yep i know for me it's like it, what I, one thing I struggle with with golf is not overthinking the swing as it's happening. Instead, mm-hmm. you know, you practice, you rely on that, but once you're on the course, you got to just let that go. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to do sometimes. So I think that's probably what happens to golfers a lot. So kind of went on a, a, uh, a tangent there on, on the yips, but I think it's important to get into because I think the, you know, the yips being invisible is kind of a, a smaller version of what we're kind of getting into today, which is that like, you know, mental health issues or issues of of uh of thought processes for athletes when they're too much inside their own head they're kind of invisible and it's hard to see those things sometimes so like you said when you see an athlete with the yips you're like hey just you know get together do what you gotta do you don't see what's going on inside their head right and i think when it comes to people who are are suicidal or at that level of 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 pain and of hurt you can't see what's happening if it was if there was a physical version of what's happening inside them You'd know what's going on, and I, and we'll get into that more. But I think it's it's what what people struggle with at times is that they don't understand the depth of pain people are in because they can't see it, mm-hmm. like a physical injury or something like that. When you can see it, it's a lot easier to feel empathetic towards people. When you can't see it, it leaves people confused. I think, and so I think the the yips are you know obviously a more uh, minor version of this, but you can't see those things. So he developed Hayden Hurst developed the yips in minor league and and the minor leagues uh, for baseball, and this started a bit of a slide for him. He said the ball would feel foreign in his hands, right? So every, things that used to feel natural don't feel natural anymore. He was having panic attacks, sweating hands, no confidence, felt embarrassed, felt like he was letting his family down. And this is where like the weight of expectations are clearly, uh, you know, at age 18, feeling like he was had to be a star pitcher or bust was coming into play. At that point, he felt burnt out with baseball. It started affecting him off the field gradually, and then he kind of realized he had an underlying passion for football, so he switched to the University of South Carolina as a 22-year-old freshman tight end. Although he left baseball to play college football, his struggles with depression persisted, and that's when he kind of reports that he started uh, drinking heavily and using drugs and kind of combining, but mostly drinking, I think. He says, quote, when I was drinking, if I didn't drink to incapacitate myself, I would have some very dark, depressed thoughts. So he's clearly, you know, numbing himself with the alcohol. Um, he also said, quote, it was me trying to escape those feelings of embarrassment or disappointment, uh, end quote. So he also mentioned that, like, feeling like baseball was ripped away from him. Um, so there's kind of this, like, this why me, this fair, unfair kind of reckoning that's going on. Um, one thing that comes up to mind for me is, like, shame shields, right? We talked about Brene Brown and shame shields because he's using substances as, as a way to run away from the shame mm-hmm. clearly um so eventually he, he attempted suicide in january 2016 uh, when playing tight end at south carolina and i think alcohol was involved um you know in the night that led him at the it's an example of how alcohol people use alcohol and other drugs to numb themselves and short term that can help them numb but it, but long term it's really just making things worse a lot of times especially with alcohol so he calls that a come to Jesus moment. A lot of times we we hear it referred to as rock bottom. I think that's a pretty common way to, to look at it. He got set up with a therapist at school, meeting three times a week for two months. You know, no judgment, saying that the the guy just was good, let him talk, helped him kind of come out of his shell, helped him realize that alcohol alcohol only amplified his issues. Um, he also met. I think this is a uh, an experience maybe in therapy. I, I don't know exactly. It sounds like in therapy he also realized that his uncle. And cousin who both committed suicide was a, mm-hmm. a huge impactful um, loss for him because he looked up to his cousin like a brother. Um, so those losses really impacted him on many levels. So this gets me to my kind of end takeaway that relates to the first one. It relates to Hayden Hurst's timeline. And that's it, it sort of makes me realize that with the expectations of masculinity, which we're going to get into the next episode, our 10th episode is going to be on masculinity. It makes men feel as though they have to keep proving their worth mm-hmm. always. Like nothing's, you know, if they're proving it on a given week, fine. But the second they're not, it it's sort of like they fall off a cliff and feel like they're they're worthless, which kind of means shame is setting in at that point. I, I like women don't do this as much, and it's not saying women or or non males or non cis males, I guess is, is the right terminology, have it easy. It's just different. 
I think guys really struggle to feel like they're proving their worth consistently. And so that was a key takeaway that I had. Um, what about you, John? Yeah, I think one of the things that I wanted to my, – my biggest thing that I wanted to talk about for, for today, um, you know, in regards to – I think that when we talk about suicide, I think one of the things that's really important is we're, not, we're talking about risk factors. Um, and unfortunately, one of the most one – mo- one of the highest risk factors for suicide is exposure. And so as a mental health professional and as advocates, it's this really funny line that we have to walk of – adding education and not exposing people to and, and you know inadvertently exposing yeah. people to it and it's this real tightrope that we have yeah. to that we have to try to find and and unfortunately my stance is that education is still needed and we can't shy away from it because we know that you know exposure could potentially be could be you know adding a risk factor to somebody because it could also be helping hundreds more mm-hmm. and so i think that the way in which um i i the way in which you know, I, I really encourage you to go through his his foundation because I think they have a really good approach of how they how they set up their mission statement, the organizations that they work with, and the things that they, the events that they run. I think they do it in a really great way. And I think for me as a mental health professional, I think it's really important that we could maybe like identify some of the terms and then be talking about like actual risk factors and pieces like that. And so wh- when we talk about suicide, um, you know, the definition for it is. Uh, defined as a death caused by self-directed injurious behavior with intent to die as a result of the behavior. And that's so that's the definition of that. And um, I'm gonna go through a couple other definitions and I'll I'll explain why in a minute. And then the suicide attempt is a non-fatal, self-directed, potentially injurious behavior with intent to die as a result of the behavior. Um, a suicide attempt might not result in injury. I think that's important too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then suicide ideation refers to thinking about, considering, or planning suicide, which is which is an important distinction. And one thing that I hear a lot when talking about this is self harm. And I, I, it's not the same as suicidality. And I think that you can be, you can struggle with self-harm and not be suicidal. Um, and I think that's, that's something that needs to be sort of highlighted because I think that it gets sort of misconstrued in the, in the dialogue. We can do a whole separate episode on Mm self-harm. Um, and I think we should. Um, but I wanted to make sure that we really like define the terms for today about what we're talking about so that our listeners have an understanding about it because I think it's still a topic. Obviously it's really uncomfortable. It's hard to talk about and it's easy to shy away from. And I want to like really, this, this is what we're talking about for today. Yeah, I think so. So self-harm is for people who self-harm, they are more at risk for suicide, yes. but it's not the same. It doesn't mean it's a, it's a suicide attempt. And right. I think that's that's the, it's a hard line to find for people. I do think it's uh, overly thought of as being suicidal, mm-hmm. and and you make a good point that it's not. So right, it's a risk factor yep. right towards yep. it, but it's not a if you're self harming, you are trying to kill Correct. yourself. And right. I think that's that's definitely something that's that's really important to sort of distinguish against. And you know, as a professional, and you you know, we work with, and I'm I'm sure you, Jotham, has worked with people who have been suicidal as well. I think finding education and language is really important mm-hmm. because there have been, you know, with every self-harm with every suicidal claim uh you have to um, go through the protocol safety check make sure there's support systems in place make sure people know what's going on if there's a plan in place to protect against that you know if they need if they're the you know if there is a plan and they have something in line you want to get them to see like go to the hospital go mm-hmm. to the er there's plenty of different places there's the advocates um or the best team which you can call them they'll come to the house to do an evaluation there's lots of supports that you can kind of go in place but i also th- i also hear a lot of times with kids which are sort of the the statement I hear a lot of like, I want to die, or I just don't want to be here anymore. And right in as, as a parent or as a someone who doesn't have an understanding, that sounds like suicidality. And really, when you work with them, it's more like frustration. Mm-hmm. You still go through safety planning. Yep. You still address it as if it's a real attempt because you never want to be in a position where you're discounting anything. You mm-hmm. take every single claim as if they are as if it is a serious threat. Yeah. Um, but I think also helping, again, this is why the education can be really important of delivering language for, for kids to be able to use. I think you know, I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling stressed out. I'm feeling whatever. That's, you can sort of go through some of those things and be more targeted. And I think that with suicide, it's, it's a harder one. And as a parent, it it's hard to hear, or as, you know, someone who doesn't work in this field, it's hard to hear someone say, I don't want to live anymore. You have to go through all of those different checks. But I think it's important that we really identify these types of things and talk about them. Um, because I think it gives people more of a sense of what we're actually trying to talk about. Um, and just provides the language because I think, like I said before, 
because it's such a hard topic, we don't talk about it as much. And I think that there's a lot of different ideas of what suicide is Mm -hmm. and what it isn't. And I think it's important that we get sort of, we find some common ground about what we're, what we're trying to discuss. Um, and so the, and the other piece from that is, you know, with, with suicide, one of the things that we really talk a lot about is my other one was like risk factors. And this is to my earlier point that we're trying to have to balance having a conversation about suicide and not exposing people to it. Um, exposure, um, is one of the greatest risk factors for people. And, um, I know we're going to, we're going to get into contagion in a, in a minute part further on in this, in this episode, but, um, I wanted to, this is where we have to find that balance. That's why I think we can start by just, these are the terms, these are the facts, these are the things that are going on to provide people the information. And then mm-hmm. we can sort of disseminate in how we can treat. And we'll get, we'll get into that, um, like helpful things for people to know and helpful things for people to pursue. So, um, those were some of the biggest ones that I, that I really wanted to talk about for today in terms of like just having a hard conversation about it was just making sure we knew what exactly it is that we were talking about. Um, and then trying to just provide some education for people who are both struggling and or just curious about the topic in general. Okay. Yeah. So I think uh, you make some good points. And I think for Hayden Hurst's experience, you know, was there anything specific to, to you know, what he said um, or, you know, takeaways from, from, you know, his talking that you had? Yeah, I think the biggest one um, that you you sort of you sort of touched on it too, but like that loss of purpose, right? And the, the combination of loss and purpose and expectations to sort of be somebody different. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was that was something that I really gravitated towards. And I think again, a lot of athletes and people in general can relate to having enormous amount of expectations of who they're supposed to be, even if it doesn't feel aligned with who they feel they are. And especially when you have something as heavy as maybe potentially going pro what's he going to say, right? Was he gonna, I don't want to do this anymore and, mm-hmm. and be this like potential shame on his entire family. He's not, he's not going to do that. So he suffers and he suffers in silence. Mm-hmm. And that's what we see all the time. And, and to your point that you was, that it was that you made that it's invisible. And, and a lot of times people are with, with depression necessarily and people who might be battling with suicide ideation actually present like almost the exact opposite. A lot of times they presented this sort of like over bubbly and over and sometimes they can, and sometimes that's something that we see. And so that's why these conversations are really important to talk about for one, people have a better understanding of what it is. And also for people who might be struggling with it to understand, like it's okay to come out and talk about this stuff. It's okay to let somebody know what's, what's going on and let somebody, you know, try to help because Mm -hmm. you don't have to do that by yourself. And perfect. I mean, another, another example of someone who's in a, who's in a spotlight coming out and basically giving permission for people who might be struggling with it to say like, Oh yeah, that's me too. So I thought that that was, that was his, that was my big impact from him and his sort of his experience sort of growing up was, you know, it wasn't very much different from a lot of experiences that I see with people that I work with. And I'm sure the same for you of like having this path that they're supposed to be down and not going well, struggling with it internally, not knowing where to turn because guys were not supposed to talk about this type of stuff. And we'll get into masculinity in our next episode, but his story was aligned with uh, many other stories that I've seen like throughout my work with people. Yeah, you make some great points. And, and one of the takeaways you had was about, you know, you touched on the importance of family. And I think that's really important here because it's, it's, it's both important, but it's a catch 22. You know, I think family and friends are, are really vital in someone getting better when they're hurting, when they're struggling with mental health issues, when they're struggling with suicidality. But it's a bit of a catch-22 at times. And for him, you could you could see this because he talks about how the love they had for him, his family had for him, made him worry about burdening or disappointing them. And that, again, it's not their fault, but it's it's this difficult situation because especially for guys, they always feel like they have to be, um, you know, proving their worth. And anytime they're not, you know, especially with something that they had these expectations about succeeding perfectly with, like becoming a pro baseball player, pro pitcher – when that isn't going to happen, it's like in their mind, part of their mind, sort of driven by shame, convinces them that they are going to, you know, let their family down or convinces them that if they open up to their family, that they will be burdening their family. And he talks about this where I think therapy kind of helped him realize this, that where we've seen a lot of guys say this, like, I don't want to talk to my family about it because I don't want to burden them. I don't want to put that on their shoulders. And that that's sort of the internal critic telling them that's what's going to happen, but it's not how reality plays out. And you, I even would encourage anyone dealing with this type of thing, this worry, this concern that they're going to burden their friends or family member or spouse by opening up to just roll reversal real quick, flip it, you know, say if, if your spouse, or your family member, son or mother or father came to you and opened up about their struggles, 
would it make you feel burdened? Because the answer is 100% of the time, no. Right. It's the, the opposite, actually. It, it, it makes the person feel needed. It makes them feel some relief that, that their loved one opened up so that there's a path to trying to get better. Uh, it makes them usually feel important, like, hey, this, or trusted. They, they came to me and I can help. Uh, makes them feel needed. So it's the opposite of burden. Yeah, it builds connection. Really, absolutely. So that's a really important takeaway I had, the importance of, of family, and you kind of touched on that. Another one that relates to that is, um, you know, I had one key takeaway I had was healthy coping strategies. So importance of family is definitely, a, a you know, one aspect of healthy coping. And we'll get into this in the, the, the second part of the episode in terms of suicide prevention. But journaling was another one that he mentioned in terms of uh, as far as healthy coping strategies go. With, you know, with guys, especially when you when we've suggested journaling to different guys, um, and it's usually, you know, met with anywhere from like an eye roll to like a dude, what are you, what are you asking me to do? Uh, and I get it. I think yeah. it's it's not something they're naturally going to gravitate to, um, and it takes a little bit of experimentation and just dipping the toes in the water to see how it works. But it's really important, and I want to kind of discuss why because I think there's a need there's a need to get the thoughts out of our head. We can't process all the thoughts that are in our head, especially when we're extremely anxious or really depressed or down. There's so many thoughts and they're so powerful. You can't make sense of all those when they're swirling around their head. And a lot of times they're bouncing off each other and just making it worse, right? It's just well, you've also – right, exactly. It's amplifying and you've all those – you've all these biases that are like not allowing you to process them yes. from a rational standpoint. They're, you're, you're processing them through all of your insecurities, your fears, your doubts, your the, anxiety, your depression, all those filters. Yes. You're not seeing things clearly. No, right? no. And it's hard to remember that. I think we – it's sort of like not intuitive to sit there and think, oh, maybe my brain is incorrect, right? Like, who thinks that? It's <laughs> no, not you assume, you assume your thoughts are true. Yeah, Everybody yeah. does. And you can't Absolutely. blame anyone for thinking that because, right. like, you know, I think it's important to realize that that's not accurate while also not thinking that means you're insane. I mean, just, like, just because <laughs> not all your thoughts are ina- uh, accurate doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It's actually, right. that's pretty human. I think that, you yeah. know, we talked about how the brain is an organ. It's got billions of neurons firing. There's bound to be some thoughts that pop into your head mm-hmm. that are out of your control and are not accurate. Right. Um, and now, especially when you overlap emotion. And so I think that it's really key for people to give it a chance because you have to get that stuff out of your head and onto paper for a couple of reasons. I mean, I think one, it's instant relief from the thoughts banging around up in your head over and over again. When you commit them to paper, they're not swirling around as much. So that's one. The second you get them out, yep. and I even do this like before I go to bed, oftentimes I'll write my to-do list for the next day or I'll write things that are kind of pressing in my head that are kind of bogging me down a little bit because it provides instant relief. Be like, all right, hey, I got those down on paper. Now they're not – I know to think about them anymore. with those. Yeah. And right. it's like you – there's a bit of a trust there. It's like, all right, there's somewhere. Mm-hmm. There's a bookmark there. I can come back to those if I need to. But I can, now I can sleep. And it does help with sleep too. That's why journaling before bed is really key because it gets the stuff that's going to, you know, we talk about rumination a lot. When people, their brains, they ruminate over and over about thoughts like, um, and they can't get off of those points. This helps with that because it, it gets it out of your head and you commit it to paper. And it's like worst case scenario, you can always come back to that if you need to, mm-hmm. but you know you're going to kind of handle it. So that's one thing. Yeah. One, one thing that. just just to add to yep. that too because, you know, we, and we've talked about this in previous in previous episodes beforehand too, and you made a really great point about how oftentimes the suggestions that we talk about or the things that we find might be really helpful on the surface seem too good to be true, mm-hmm. right? Or too easy or too simple so yes. they can't be yep. effective, right? And journaling is one is like right up there, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing, right? You get the eye rolls. You get the like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And then, you you know, they, they don't do that. It's it seems meditation. like similar to meditation yeah. or breath training or any of those yeah. things. It feels like it's just like, well, how could that possibly do anything yeah. for me as a form of denial so they don't have to do it? And journaling is like one of those big things. Mm-hmm. And I think when when you said like dip your toe in, actually give it a shot, it doesn't have to be like a dear diary today. Exactly. Susie exactly. Q said something it mean to me in the cafeteria. It can key, be keywords if you want it to be. Absolutely. Yeah. It can be keywords to retract back the thought. It can yeah. be drawing. It can be sketching. It can be anything. Yeah. Like some form of, I call it like the external hard drive, like yeah. store it somewhere else so you can get some relief. External hard drive is a great way to Yeah. Absolutely. So I think the the second kind of point on that journaling point is that, so the first one was it it helps get thoughts out of your head, um, which provides instant relief, right? So there's a relief that sets in. And the second one is it provides clarity of what those thoughts are, how they relate, and how, how to possibly see a path through them. It's really hard to have clarity when there's that many thoughts happening. When they're on paper, you're like, oh, okay, I see how that relates to that. And now I can I can actually have a plan of what to do about it. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's definitely key. And I would encourage anyone just to, just to give it a shot. Again, like you said, it doesn't have to be a dear diary thing. <laughs> no. um, and you don't have to do it with anyone around. You can just, yeah. you know, go, go in a room by yourself and 
try five minutes of just like whether it's bullet points or what what's sometimes called you know stream of consciousness or like narrative kind of writing where you're just like you're not it's judgment free mm-hmm. and this is harder than you think i would encourage people to do it. it's very therapeutic just to like five ten minutes of writing down whatever is popping into your head no censoring like it could it could be all dark horrible stuff mm-hmm. or self-doubt or hatred for another person or whatever it doesn't matter you're just trying to get it out to see all right what really is in my head what has been going through there because you'd be surprised and i think mm-hmm. it's really important to do that because it gives people some clarity around you know what it is that they're maybe struggling with or thinking repetitively um, yeah. Yeah. And one, one point about that too, I think another thing that comes into play at least from, from my standpoint too, I think that there's hesitation when I was, when I was younger, I, you know, was given the option of trying to do some journaling. And I remember very vividly not wanting to do that because that was a girl activity, yes, right? Girls had, girls had diaries, girls had journals, mm-hmm. guys aren't supposed to do that. Yes. Um, and we'll, we'll cover this again in ma- the masculinity topic, but that was, <laughs> that was one of the major hindrances that for me to start to write. And then when I finally was just like, well, let me just give it a shot. And now I've not looked back and I've got like 50, 50 books worth of yeah. journaling that have gone on. And it's been one of the most effective things for me to use. I think once you just get past those, those hindrances or barriers in your way of like, it's too simple. It's a, it's not a male activity to those do. Are the two, those right? are the biggest, those are the two, those two big, big ones, ones yep. that I've kind yep. of, it's like, well, you know what? Do it for a week and come back and tell me what happens. And, and, and usually within like a few weeks of doing that practice, people are like, oh, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. I, I get it now. I see what's for going sure. on. So I, I, I mirror what you're saying. I highly encourage everyone who's listening to this to just give it a shot. That, I mean, what, there's, <laughs> what's the worst that could happen, right? Absolutely. And this kind of relates to – I think we've talked about this in a prior episode, but it's something I, I ask clients to do, particularly when they are – struggling with negativity and i think that you know we've talked about it a lot in past episodes how the brain is is very much slanted towards negativity i think it's at least three times to one when you factor in social media and media it's probably even worse than that but when i have clients you know when you're depressed obviously that's like a black cloud over everything and that's going to make you even more negative negativity is something that keeps them stuck and one of the things i ask them to do is like what's called a i think it's called a grateful exercise or grateful project or that kind of thing where for 21 days you can do it for longer but 21 days you write down three things per day that you're grateful for and you can't use the same thing twice so you really have to it by by the third week you're really stretching <laughs> your ability to see positive things and i th- i think we've talked about this too like the tesla effect i call it right where like when something you didn't know was there, this happens with music a lot, something you didn't know was there is queued up into your active focus, you start to see it everywhere. And I was there the same amount the whole time, mm-hmm. but now you're aware of it and you start to see it more. For me, that was when someone said like, hey, dude, have you seen these Teslas? This was like years ago. It's like, no, what's that? And they showed me one. And then moving forward, I just saw them everywhere. And they were probably there the same amount, mm-hmm. but I didn't even know what to look for. Songs are like that too. Someone says like, have you heard this song? You listen to it. All of a sudden, you know, you know it's everywhere. You're, you're hearing it everywhere. Yep. It was there before. You just didn't really know to look for it. Mm-hmm. And positivity can be just like that. If you are just fo- fixated on negative stuff, guess what? Your filter is negative and it's going to reinforce you staying stuck. You do the grateful exercise. You start to – you actually change the way your thinking works over the span of three weeks. And I've had every person that's actually, you know, gotten past the initial eye roll, especially the guys, <laughs> where they're like, dude, you want me to talk about what I'm grateful for? Like, right. what is this stuff? Like, right. give me a break. And I'm like, look, I know. Trust me. If someone told me to do it, I'd roll my eyes too. But just give it a shot. Like, keep an open mind. And at the end of three weeks, not only are they amazed, but they're like – usually doing much better right because they're seeing positive things they're not just disqualifying the positive that happens every day and fixating on the negative stuff Mm -hmm. they're actually seeing a wider range and it really does help so i think this is a kind of a a a version of journaling or yeah exactly just provides balance exactly so one other takeaway i had from from hayden hurst's experience specifically is that people we got into this a little bit with the whole yips conversation but people don't really understand what it's like i really think there's a, a huge misunderstanding from people who have never been in this level of pain to even consider suicide, they don't know what it's like. Um, and I think a lot of times it's because they eat two things. They haven't gone through it, so they don't know, right? It's like people who think, you know, depression is sadness or a migraine headache is, is a headache. Mm-hmm. It's like if, if you've never gone through it, you can't really know the difference between those things. They might sound similar, but but they're not. I think that's one. So if you've never been in this level of pain, it's hard for you to really get it. And two, you can't see it. And this is the thing we've talked about with when it comes to mental health, I think maybe this is part of why there's a bit of a stigma too, or something that contributes to the stigma, is that a lot of it's invisible. Even you hear this referred to um, with returning vets, like treating the invisible wounds of war. I think that's um, kind of a version of this where it's like some of these things you can't, people on the outside can't see. And I think it works against empathy and understanding because we can't see it. But if you, 
And you're, when you're really in that headspace, the only thing you think about is, and he says this actually, quote, when you're in that headspace, the only thing you think about is making the pain go away. And I think the this is a really key point because I'd like to give people an example of a physical version of this. And, that, uh, you know, I'm trying to keep things light here. Um, if you've ever seen Home Alone, you know that time, that point where Joe Pesci, one of the, you know, the wet bandits mm-hmm. is... Uh, is break trying to break in the door and the blowtorch hits him in the head and his head head's on fire mm-hmm. and he just like spins around runs outside and just you know dives headfirst into the snow. I mean, I think to me it's that's like the physical equivalent. Like if if you saw someone with their head on fire, like would you blame them for going and diving headfirst <laughs> into like a snowbank or right. something? No, you'd be like, yeah, your head was. That on makes fire. sense. That makes sense, right? right? I think when people are in this level of pain to where they're even you know contemplating the concept of suicide. They're in a level of pain that people really can't understand. And if they saw it physically, and I would encourage people to try to translate that in their own minds, like what would this look like physically? It would be like someone who's in a, you know, a life or death situation and their head's on fire and they're just looking around like, how do I make this stop? How do I make this go away? They're looking Mm -hmm. for instant relief. And so I think if, if people view it that way, they wouldn't judge at all. And I think we, we, this is important because I think one of the things I hear um, when it comes to the topic is is people blaming the the person dealing with this for being weak or selfish, saying things like, you know, quote, you know, how could you take the easy way out? Or, quote, mm-hmm. how could you do that to your family? It's selfish. It's just not relevant to what the person is going through. Like if someone had a head on fire and they're about to jump in a snowbank, would you say like, you know, how could you do that to your family? Or like you wouldn't think it's just not about that. The person is suffering. Um, so that was one thing that kind of came up for me. Right, exactly, and we're gonna we're gonna get into like the support networks and pieces like that, and the family, the importance of language for someone who's going through some of that stuff. But I, I think you make a great a great point. I think trying to think about it in a in something that you could potentially relate to helps people understand that. And throwing shame onto someone who's already feeling so low that they're contemplating taking their own life, not an effective strategy for working it's through just make help, helping worse. them work right. Because then yeah. they're saying, well, well, now I can't even get support from this person because they're making me feel even worse for what's going on that I for something that I cannot control. Yeah. Obviously, if they could turn it off like a light switch, they certainly would. Right. Right. And so um, I think that that's I think that's a great point that you that you bring up. I think it's a really great way for people who haven't experienced that level of pain before to try to translate it to the Joe Pesci's head on fire or something like that. Yeah. That, yeah if, if you saw someone like that do something like put them head in the snow with their head on fire, you that logically makes sense for what you're looking to do. And I think with because depression and, you know, the suicidal ideation and those types of thoughts, we can't see them. We don't can't empathize with that person if we don't feel the same way. And so trying to trying to help understand it from a different context or something that you might be able to relate to can maybe give you some insight of like how incredibly painful this is going on for that person. And it's not something that they can just dunk their head into the snow and get and get instant relief, right? right? Which is why you see a lot with substance abuse and those yep. types of things, right? Yep. Because it does provide some sense of relief, short-term numbing. Short-term yeah. numbing. Yep. And yep. so um, I think you make some really great points about that. Yeah. So the, the only other takeaway I have before we're going to switch into the uh, second part of the episode where we get into suicide prevention um, the only other takeaway I had was just Hayden Hurst showing intense vulnerability, which yeah. I have to just give him like <laughs> it's awesome, hundred percent, like utmost credit for because you know he on this I think it was on the E60 episode with ESPN, you know he was he was in tears and just being a hundred percent transparent about the pain he was in and the things he continues to struggle with, and to to show that emotion to me was unbelievable to see. I mean, I think it was like we need more of that because it. Um, you know, it, it, I don't want to say it normalizes pain because I don't think it's the right way to put it, but it just, it normalizes, uh, opening up about vulnerability, being vulnerable and opening up about the reality of the pain that you're in. And I think this is a concept we seem to keep coming back to with this episode is that, you know, emotional pain, psychological pain is still pain, right? And if a person's going through that, it's really important to try to, for them and the people looking from the outside and to translate that into a physical version, right? Like, because if you translated emotional pain to a physical version, you'd see a broken leg, you'd see a torn ACL, you'd see all the, like, you have to understand it in the same landscape, because if you're dealing with it, and you're not looking at it in that through that lens, you're less likely to get help, right? If you're, if you tore your ACL, would you think twice about getting help? No, you get help in right away, two seconds, right? So you have to look at mental health through that same lens, so that you're willing to not judge, you know, not have, not have a stigma, Instead, be open, be vulnerable, be honest, and get help. And that's, I just got to give him credit because I think him showing that vulnerability is so key for people to see. Yeah. And I think we're going to continue to come back to vulnerability as one of the biggest takeaways we get from most of these episodes and why it's so important. And, you know, when he, when he was vulnerable 
in that episode and just in general. I mean, he's open about talking about it through his foundation, but just in the, the interviews that we've that we've referenced and the the documentaries that he's been on. But you know, he was vulnerable, and the world didn't end. Right, the ceiling didn't fall yep. down. He his parents he didn't, didn't feel his burdened. Parents, parents you know, yeah. didn't feel burdened. Yep. Right, it's 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 so it's not only like the again like him giving permission for people to be vulnerable. It's also providing direct examples of someone being vulnerable and the world not coming to a stop. And I, you know, I feel like for a lot of people, that's what that's 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 the feeling. Like if I were to share what's actually going on, everything's like the world's going to end. And so I'm not going to do that, or I'm going to disappoint my family, or I'm going to disappoint this, or all these different lies that get that you feed yourself mm-hmm. to not be vulnerable. Which is why having examples from people like Hayden Hurst to come out and show people how to do it, uh, you know, there's no perfect way. There's no there's no template for being vulnerable other than just telling your truth about what is going on for you. That is just being vulnerable and having just ample and evidence and more examples like Hayden is just it's so profound and so helpful for people who might be going through the same thing. Absolutely, absolutely, very well well said. So we're gonna um, you know pivot into the uh, second part of the episode, which is on suicide prevention. Not going to get into the data too much. I mean, I think we, we've talked about this in, yep. in one, at least one, maybe two past episodes. But obviously, the, the numbers, the suicide numbers are up, particularly among men. Uh, it's not trending in the right direction. And no. we really need more awareness about this stuff to get those numbers to flat out and hopefully come down. Uh, so I want to talk about the warning signs a little bit. Then we're going to get into like what to do uh, when it comes to uh, suicide prevention. So just a few warning signs, you know, for, for you, you know, li- anyone listening, dealing with this kind of stuff, or if they have a loved one who may be dealing with it. Here are some of the warning signs to kind of look for. And obviously, there's the obvious ones about like, talking about wanting to die or talking about wanting to kill themselves, uh, looking for ways to do that, searching online or buying a gun, uh, talking about feeling hopeless or having no reason to live, talking about feeling trapped or in unbearable pain. Right? We talked about that that pain component. Talking about being a burden to others. Right? That was something that Hayden Hurst has has said he worried about. Mm-hmm. Uh, increasing the use of dr- alcohol or drugs, acting anxious or agitated, and behaving recklessly. Sleeping too little or too much. I think sleep disturbances tend to be pretty integral to a lot of different mental health issues. Uh, Withdrawing or isolating themselves. Showing rage or talking about seeking revenge. uh, Displaying extreme mood swings. And then obviously going through abuse or trauma is a a huge um, risk factor, I guess, would be more -hmm. more than a warning sign. But if you know someone has been through that, then that can be. So what would you say, John, in terms of what people can do when it comes to suicide prevention, where would you start? Um, I would say, you know, if someone's actively talking about those different things, I think priority one is like we, we call it, the term is like safety planning. So yeah. that's 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 the number one. Ensuring that the person is safe. So if the person's talking about like a plan to, you know, kill themselves with a with an instrument or a knife or a gun, you want to clear those things out of the house if you can. Get rid of those those opportunities and pieces like that. Like and also trying to find, you know, I think a lot of times, sometimes for for family members or for support networks, it's hard to get to that point and they'll say like, oh, you know, they maybe they didn't mean it or they'll try to downplay it. And I think that's part of the struggle of like we you don't have the opportunity to be detective here. Every time that someone talks about this, you have to take it seriously every single time mm-hmm. because God forbid something were to happen the the one time you were like, oh, he's just like looking for attention or oh, he's just, you know, he's just what this, this or that. Um so putting safety plans in place. If if this happens, we call advocates. If this happens, we go to the ER. If, you know, removing removing access to, to things that might be used and things like that, I think that's really important. And then in terms of prevention, the things that I really turn to is connection and education. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the, the two first ones. So connection in sort of in two different ways, connecting with your support networks and with your friends and with your family and you know, whatever your support network might be. I think we, we, we talk a lot about family and, you know, unfortunately, sometimes family is not people's support networks yeah, and um, that sometimes that happens. And so trying to identify the people in their life that are going to provide support for them, I think is really important. The people who are safe. Right. right the yeah. people who are safe and yeah. that they can be safe with, I think yeah. is important. The other one too is, you know, I think a lot of times in, in doing a lot of research, this and hearing a lot of people's stories is when people who are struggling with this is that when they, you know, they say, well, I wasn't the only one, you know, I was like, I'm not the only one who's ever had this before. And there are others out there that kind of go through this with me, like joining in with this group of people who are also struggling in the same way. You you talked just earlier about hard for someone who doesn't understand to provide empathy. And so if you can be in a room with people who do understand and can provide direct empathy, it provides a sense of comfort and support for that person that's different than a, than even their support networks of people who might not be able to see them in that same way. So I talk about connection in two different spheres. One, like get around the people that are going to support you and, mm-hmm. and that work with you. And then maybe also try to 
surround yourself or expose yourself to people who've gone through something similar and hear their stories of how they got themselves out of it to provide, again, sort of like forward thinking and, and movement forward. I think that's something that's really important. And then I talk about like prescribing joy. So what were things that used to bring you joy? And, you know, for someone who's like in that space, everything feels terrible, yeah. right? Everything is awful. Everything, what's the point? All of these different things. And sometimes you have to like rewind a little bit back because there probably was a point in time where there were things or people or activities that brought them joy. And mm -hmm. I try to rewind back to some of those things. Let's try to insert some moments in your day, even if it's just one, right? Even if it's one thing during your day that you can look forward to, to build off of, I think that's really important. And I usually try to do a lot of stuff in the morning. Um, that's usually where I try to tackle that type of stuff. And I, I call it like priming your day or prime your brain. And so gratitude is one of the, one of the exercises that I do prime your brain to see more things you're going to be appreciative yeah. of, or prime your brain to experience joy in the morning so that you can seek more of that stuff out. And that's sort of the beginning works that we do. And it starts so, small, the scale, oh, you know, when they're that low, right? It's incremental. Like it's, you have to start small Absolutely. and then it builds Absolutely. like anything else. You got out of bed this morning. Yeah. Awesome exactly. work. Let's exactly. build off that. Yep. That's phenomenal. Yep. Right. And so it's not, like I, I mentioned earlier, it's not this light switch fix of like, if you do these X, Y, and Z, you're yeah. going to be better, right? That's not how that works. And and this this process is long. It can be difficult. Oftentimes, the journey is can be as painful or even more so than the actual depression that they're, that they're mm -hmm. suffering through. And so it's hard work. And even incremental, incremental sort of steps forward in the right direction is huge. So... Those are the, some of the stuff that we that I usually start with in the beginning. Uh, safety planning, connection to both support networks, but also to other people who might be going through some of that stuff, and then working on building some successes for them in the morning. I think that's a great way to put it. So you covered kind of you know safety first. Safety planning is really key. You know, people getting a risk assessment I think yeah. is really important in the beginning. Um, you know, to to get into the risk factors and to try to understand what is really going on. Mm -hmm. Developing a safety plan. You mentioned kind of connecting to supports, uh, supports, safe supports, uh, identifying healthy coping strategies, and 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 knowing what your after hour resources are as well. I think is yep. important. And we talked about the, um, you know, the suicide national suicide prevention hotline. You know, for people who are struggling. It's again, it's one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. So developing a safety plan is really key. First, and again, we we talked a little bit about risk factors, but you know, any risk factors when it comes to you know suicide prevention, you know, mental health issues, trauma, substance abuse, loss, and you mentioned suicide contagion. So, do you want to talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah. So, you know, again, we talked about at the very beginning of the episode when I was kind of going through some of the definitions, but exposure is a like a major contributing factor to. Um, to, to suicide. Mm -hmm. So having sort of being having someone who might be having these underlying conditions that are going on, being exposed to it can actually increase can increase the the likelihood that it might happen for that person. The other thing too that I think we have to come a long way, and in recent years there has been a shift, is that you know in in past there was a lot of like almost glorification of it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I think not to the fault, right? You want to celebrate this person, um, and you know talk about them in that way, and 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 that, um, but. It also, for people who might be struggling with like feeling lonely or feeling depressed or feeling disconnected, then it, there's this act that now everyone's talking about me. Um, everyone's sort of glorifying how great of a person I was and how all these different things. And I think that does contribute a little bit to potentially to them seeking out and being able to do that. The piece that's missing is that they are not there to experience that. Um, and so I, you do some awful, you know, it, it's unfortunate to see, but you do see, you know, when when one suicide maybe were to happen, like in a school district, you might see a few that follow, you know, in the months after, which is why, you know, I, I'm coming from schools and there was an enormous amount of um, training that we kind of went through to capture sort of like these, call them like circles, basically, like uh, exposure circles. Mm -hmm. So how close the person who maybe committed suicide, who who are the people that are closest to them? target them specifically because they're going to need a lot of support mm -hmm. and then kind of work your way back out back yep. from there so that you're making sure that you're not letting people sort of slip through the cracks or um, you're offering support for all of those different people. So unfortunately, you do see that. And, you know, here in Massachusetts, we're certainly not, you know, 
Um, it's not absent of us. There was a, in a couple different towns in in the area that happened where you'd you'd get one and then you'd get like a couple more after. Um, and so it's definitely one thing. And I, I know schools are doing a lot of work around it. They're working with different organizations. Um, Riverside Trauma is one of them that does. They'll come into schools and like do trainings on these mm-hmm. different things and talking about like not memorializing yep. you know death or not memorializing people who are and that's specific suicide. to Massachusetts. Yeah. Yep. yep. Specific to Massachusetts. So um, th- that's some of the stuff that I see a lot with contagion. It's both like it's both a a risk factor, um, a high one, um, you know, giving people sort of like, oh, I can do this. And I think that, you know, unintention, obviously, yes. it's not an intentional piece to glorify what's going on for that person who maybe committed suicide, but the impact is that it does. Yeah. And I think that, I think that that contributes to that, um, as well for that, that contagion factor. Yeah. I think it's important for people to know that. Yeah. Because if you don't, if you're not aware of that, 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 that that's actually a thing. Right. It, it might have a grip over you and you not you just wouldn't know about it. So mm-hmm. I think learn this is why learning about this stuff is so key for people because the more aware you are, then when that stuff starts to shift or it could impact you, you're gonna catch that or be more likely to right. instead of it having a pull over you without you knowing. So mm-hmm. I think that's really it's a great way to put it. I'm glad we kinda got into that. Uh, one one other thing I wanted to touch on when it comes to suicide prevention is just for people to understand that perspectives can change. Even if you or a person is in intense pain now perspectives can change there is potential for that by getting help i think it's important to to say in this sense that uh, there are a lot of so when someone does attempt suicide but thankfully does not end their own life their reflection is often how much they wanted to live in those final moments um you know a regret about their decision to to try to end their life sets in and a desire to live becomes very powerful they realize they want to live in those moments that's a very common thing you hear from people in those situations so i think it's really key for people to know that your perspective can change yeah um, and it's worth trying to get help. It's worth reaching out for support. Um, ultimately, getting help is the name of the game. I think yeah. that's the most important thing to do. We talked about the suicide prevention hotline one last time on, on that number. It's 1-800-273-8255. Uh, call that number. Talk to a family member or a friend that you feel is safe uh, if you can. And re- just remember that you know, for anyone listening out there who might struggle or if they have a loved one that they think might be struggling – a part of the person struggling is going to try to convince themselves uh, that they are burdening the people around them for opening up. And so it's really key that if you're the person listening and you're dealing with that, that's the internal critic is telling you that you're going to burden these people around you. But that's not how it plays out in real life. And if you're a person that sees someone struggling, make sure you reassure them in some kind of way that they're not burdening you, that this is a good thing that they're opening up because otherwise that they, they might not know that. And that's a really key thing to, um, uh, it's a key barrier to getting help is that feeling that you're going to burden the people around you. So, um, so I think that's it for today on, on this topic. You know, I really appreciate everyone tuning in. It's just a reminder, you know, we are doing this podcast as a way to try to help people. Um, it's a, it's a way to try to, get key information uh, to, to the people listening about difficult mental health topics. We don't have all the answers. No. You know, I think we're doing our best. And I, I found that, that doing this podcast has has made me even better at my job. I feel like that's one of the mm-hmm. things that uh, added benefit is that we continue to learn as well. We're not, we're not going to know all the answers. And I think no. doing these episodes is going to help us continue to get better mm-hmm. and get more knowledgeable about these things too. Um, also with the main goal, of course, of helping as many people as we can is what we're trying to do. Right. But encourage people to, you know, follow us, subscribe, um, and give us a review if you can, or give us some constructive feedback. We're looking to get better. Uh, we don't expect just nothing but nice comment. We expect people to tell us how we can improve because we're trying Absolutely. to help people, and we can only help people the most if we're doing this as best as we can. So, um, I think that is it for today. So I, I want to thank everyone for listening to the Grim Drive podcast for this discussion on Hayden Hurst and suicide prevention. We'll be back next week to talk about barstool sports and masculinity. Thank you.